I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to the book of Jeremiah. As we continue our study in this book, Jeremiah chapter 13, we'll pick up partway through the chapter. Begin reading in verse 20 through verse 27. Jeremiah chapter 13, I will be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. Jeremiah chapter 13, beginning verse 20. God's word declares, lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you, you beautiful sheep? What will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pang seize you like a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? Well, for the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. Can Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good, who are accustomed to do evil. Therefore I will scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot, the portion of your, of your measures from me, says the Lord. Because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore I will uncover your skirts over your face, that your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries and your lustful names, your, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills of the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! Will you still not be made clean? Looks like both of my pianists were in the nursery and junior church today. I think I'm on my own for the closing hymn. Just another reminder of... Uh, those of you who may not have been here at the earlier part of the service, um, next Sunday is the Roman Easter. We are not celebrating that. Um, we will still have services, though. It is the Lord's Day. Um, but uh, we will be celebrating Easter May 1st, which is Orthodox Easter, which is during the week of Passover. And we all hopefully can uh, understand historically from our Bibles why we do that. And uh, sometimes... The Roman Easter lines up with Passover, and sometimes it doesn't. Its intention was to never line up. Um, that was what they were trying to do. But um, So we follow the Orthodox calendar overwhelmingly. Sometimes those are right on top of each other, sometimes within a week or so of each other. But on occasions, like this year, there are weeks and weeks from each other. And so... Uh, we will be celebrating May 1st, so that what that gives you an opportunity to do is to run out there after next Sunday and get all the sales, because you haven't celebrated Easter yet. And get all the cheap stuff, and then we can do it all on May 1st. So just to let you know, so we are doing that in conjunction with Passover, um, for that was the time of our Savior's Passion was during Passover, and so we try to keep that association very strong here. Well, this morning, if you will uh, take your Bibles and uh, turn again with me to Jeremiah 13, we are going to continue our study, and if you weren't here last week, uh, we're going to jump into some serious and important information. Uh, We're going to make some... uh, Further developments here. We're going to press you into the New Testament this morning. Last week we really went back into more of the Old Testament, the historical books, to get understanding of the uh, concern of Jeremiah here in this chapter and what he was picturing. The first, the first uh, eleven verses that we have really a message that God gives and makes Jeremiah act out that really isn't for anyone else but Jeremiah to remind him of why it is that God is uh, dealing so harshly with his people at this time, why this message is so necessary, even though it is very unpopular, even based upon chapter 12 with Jeremiah himself, that he is weeping over it and asking God, is this really what you're going to be having to do? Uh, And as a priestly son... Uh, he has his attention drawn on the priests, prophets, and leaders of Israel. Um, but in the midst of this chapter, we also have him transitioning and really speaking uh, directly and almost by name to the king and his queen mother. And so we had an idea that's Jehoiachin. Chin? Yes, Jehoiachin. 
um, and Nehushta, his mother, that because he was a very young man uh, when he became king, and so she reigned with him. And so we saw that in verse 18. And so we have picked up this, this necessity of Israel to come into confession that it is time for you to humble yourselves before God. Um, Jeremiah is revived, if you will, in the necessity of the message and is pouring himself into this and he's calling the people to repentance. He's calling them out of darkness into light. He is calling them uh, from the error to truth. He is calling them from their shame, which we're going to see today, into God's glory. He is calling them out of their pride and ruin into the cleanliness, the newness that only God can provide. And we saw last week the connection between the uh, apparel that was being worn, the, the linen sash or undergarment that Jeremiah was to take and hide by the river, and connecting that to where we start in chapter 13 with Jeremiah to where God wants it to end with all the people, and that is that they be made clean. This is what God's goal and aspiration is. Uh, But we have a dilemma in the midst of him uh, working his will in the people of Israel, and a dilemma that still exists today, and we're going to discuss that. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us, your spirit within us, your people around us. And now as we go into your word, we pray for your spirit's mighty hand to work in us, your purposes to convict us of our sin, to um, of your righteousness, and of a judgment to come, that we might seriously consider our ways, and where they do not agree with yours, that we might be willing to radically sometimes change them. And Lord, that you might find within us hearts that are humble before you and not full of pride, that we are ready to allow your work to transform us, knowing that we cannot do it ourselves. And so, Lord, we wait upon you this hour and pray you might guard this time from error, from opinion, from the philosophies of this world, that what is said might be truly and accurately according to your word of truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come into this portion of chapter 13, and we have some difficult language that we're going to have to work around a little bit, but we also have some very powerful themes, some that have been, I think, abused by some within Christianity, um, and we're going to deal with that as well as time permits. Um, but we come into verse 20, and we are called upon, or Israel is called upon, remember the the core of this message based upon verse 18 and 19 is the realization that God's judgment is at hand. And in fact, for Jehoiachin, um, this message is pretty, uh, probably given at his coronation. Uh, the, the evidence from all of verse 12 and following with the whole filling up the wineskins, let, let's get all these large containers, uh, full of wine and the, and the, the, celebratory nature of what was going on, uh, and God in the midst of that has this real downer message that I'm very at wrath with you, you're not right with me, you have a new king, um, and he's young, and and you might think that things are going to be going, but in fact, um, you're heading to destruction, and his last message is really powerfully accurate, um, Joya Chin's Rain, if you want to call it that, lasts one month. Lasts pretty short. Um, Jehoiachin comes into it in Second uh, Kings 24. If you want to j- jump back there real quick, I just want to make sure that we're covering that. I know we talked about last week, but I want to reiterate some things so we know our, 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 uh, who we're talking about. In verse 8, it says, Jehoiachin of First, second Kings 24 was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned, I'm sorry, I said one month, three months, so I thought. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. Nothing had changed. So this is the king that we're talking about with his queen mother. And the celebration of coronation would often last weeks, even a month. 
And so we're into this, and in the midst of all of this going on, here comes Jeremiah the prophet saying, now you have arrogantly taken the throne, but what God calls you to is to repent. And here in the midst of his, I believe, his coronation, (laughs) he says, humble yourselves, sit down. The whole idea is you need to surrender. You need to surrender this throne and give glory to God and not to yourself. That you recognize that Israel is in a bad way, that Judah is in a time that desperately needs to repent, to change her ways, um, but they are heading in a course. And here you might wonder, how in three months can Jehoiachin do evil in the sight of the Lord? He didn't have much time to do that. Well, this is the evil he did. I believe he's confronted at his coronation with this message, and he rejected it. And this is the evil done in the sight of the Lord, is to reject a message that says, humble yourself, sit down. It says, your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. And in fact, the city of the south shall be shut up, which we saw really in chapter 24, verse 7, if we had gone back into Second Kings, we saw that last week. And they are done. You're surrounded. The Babylonians are coming for the second time to sack Jerusalem. You'll be carried away captive. And again in chapter 24 in verses 14 and 16, we saw that occur, that, he's, that Nebuchadnezzar comes in and for the second time there it simply uh, doesn't allow anyone of any stature to stay that he empties the city by and large, leaves a few peasants around to keep the land. Um, but that's about it. He takes either destroys them or takes them captive, all because this young king did not heed the voice of the prophet. Some might consider, well, he had no chance to bring any reforms, but his heart was evident to the Lord. And so Jeremiah's message continues on this normally very uh, joyful occasion of seating a new king in in Judah. In verse 20, he calls upon the people to lift up their eyes and see, for those who come from the north are already here. And we have a a verbiage here that we're going to struggle with a little bit, um, but it's a very simple message. And the simple message is this is that you, not only you king, but you priests and prophets, have a responsibility to shepherd the people of God. That is that they will follow you. You are the God-ordained leadership. They will follow you. And you have a responsibility to be accountable to the owner of the sheep. The shepherd is not the owner of the sheep. They are the managers of the sheep. And so when the question comes, where's your flock... Where are your beautiful sheep? The question is being asked by the owner of the sheep to the shepherds. And here the leadership of Israel is being challenged. What have you been doing with the sheep that God has entrusted into your care? You should have been leading them into humility. You should have been leading them into truth. You should have been leading them into justice, into righteousness, into glory, into cleanliness, into the light. And instead, you have led them into darkness and into ruin, into shame and pride. And in so doing, in so mishandling the shepherding of your sheep, you have given the upper hand. It's uh, described in, in the New King James anyways. You have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pang seize you. And so here comes the punishment of God. And it's interesting because God is going to ask one question. And Judah is anticipated of asking almost the same question in reverse. So the question comes, what will you say when he punishes you? What are you going to say when God comes and punishes you because you have spoiled the sheep? Remember how the garment was spoiled. The garment that he wore. So he's using somewhat of the same language, the same imagery. Um, And so how is it you have spoiled the sheep? Now you have ruined the flock and in so doing you have 
given training, you have given the upper hand to the enemies of the flock. And what is going to happen? They are going to be chieftains and be head over you. And now you are going to be supplanted. You had a flock given to you. You have opportunity to lead them into righteousness, to bring them by first humbling yourself and then leading the people to humble themselves, to give off of this following after other gods, of the social injustice that's going on in the land. You have the opportunity to lead them and you have failed and therefore by doing so, God's going to punish you. How? By raising up those that are going to supplant you. They're going to take you off. They're going to eliminate you. The ones that are going to be destroyed, as Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem, are going to be these very leaders that refuse to humble themselves before God. So we have this statement that it is going to come, and they're going to be the heads over you. You who claim to be heads of Judah, now you're going to be forcefully removed from your place by these who do not seem to be the people of God at all. Although we know the end of the story, right? That here are the ones that come, they come out of the milieu of having come to Judah years earlier to give glory to the God of Judah during the days of Hezekiah. They sent emissaries when the sun moved backwards in the sky. Everyone took notice of that. And those on that land sent emissaries. And Hezekiah did the foolish thing of showing them all the wealth of Jerusalem. And, and But the people were there to give glory to the God of Hezekiah that moved the sky. And then we can go forward in the time of Daniel and we see Nebuchadnezzar, his own testimony in the book of Daniel, how he came to regard and to humble himself before the God of Daniel, the God of Judah, and proclaimed him to be the God of his realm. And so um, this instrument that in the midst of all of this, Judah could have a very negative sense towards as the enemy, um, God is using them as an instrument to punish his people because of their rebellion against him, refusal to hear the prophets. And again, another question comes, and that is, this is going to come like pangs, like a woman in labor, in childbirth, that uh, it's going to come, and it's going to come more and more frequently, and uh, until finally it's just destruction. It's just overwhelming pain. But there is a new birth at the other end of that, and it's going to take some time, but first... God's going to have to purify his people, and that's a painful process. It still is. It is a painful process when God has to come in and purify his people. None of us relish it, but all of us need it and can only benefit from it. Now we come into a series of passages where we have God anticipating now, Israel's response, Judah's response. It says, and if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? A very similar question to what God asked in verse 21 of them is what they are going to be asking of him. He asks, what will you say when you punishes you? Well, what do we always say when, when we get punished? Why did that have to happen to me? We have a complaint question. Why have these things happened to me? I've only been king for a couple of months and here comes the ruler of the north, the Nebuchadnezzar coming against me. Well, there was rebellion. You, 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 it was evidence there in the, in the king's passage of what you intended to do. That rebellious was in, rebellion was in your heart and you rejected the word of the Lord. And now here these comes and now you're claiming ignorance. I have no idea why all this is happening to me. That doesn't happen anymore, of course. We're more sophisticated than that, right? Why are these things happening? Man, we still hear it from our kids, teenagers. Why has this happened to me? Well, you disobeyed and you were punished. You can blame the punisher, the one inflicting the pain on you, or you could take responsibility and recognize 
I deserved this. I earned it. I made this happen by my disobedience. And while we see it plainly in children, we have such a difficult time seeing it in ourselves, don't we? Of our reaction to God, bringing things in our life to test us, try us, and to break us sometimes, to humble us, because we refuse to humble ourselves, to bring these things into our life, to get our attention, and we say, why are these things happening to me? And invariably, what we find in the Christian community these days is uh, always a positive thing. These are just to make me stronger. And that kind of philosophy that's out there. And one of the things we always discount is because there's sin, I need to get out of my life. We never really address that one first. We always want to talk about these other reasons that things happen. And we tend to always associate ourselves with one guy in the Bible, and that's Job. Oh, it's, I'm just like Job. I'm, just the, I'm the most righteous person on the planet, and God is just using me to test whether I'll curse him or not. We always go there first. And there's a great danger in that. And here's the danger. is um, The pride of saying you're the perfect person in all your ways. We associate ourselves with the Jobs, and we seldom associate ourselves with the Jehoiachins. And say, I need to consider my ways. I need to evaluate my life a little more seriously and consider that perhaps God is getting my attention because there's things in my life that should never be there. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, these things don't belong, and I am being worked on by God to remove them, and instead I am taking this ground that I am this picture of righteousness that needs to bring glory to him by being tested and coming through. We always take that ground first, because that's the pride. And Judah shared in that pride, oh, we're Jerusalem, we have the temple, we have all this. Certainly we won't fall, even after falling once, falling again. And so they come with this question, why have these things come upon me? And God, anticipating the question, gives the answer before the question is ever spoken on anyone's breath. He brings forth the answer and he says, it's not me, although the measure that's coming from me, it is not because of me, it is not my desire to do this, it is yours, it is for the greatness of your iniquity that this shame is going to come upon you. And he gives some pretty shameful things. He talks about, excuse me, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. That whole idea of the shameful and violent result that's going to come upon them. They are going to be punished by the Lord for their sin. And their pride of refusing to even consider they have sin to deal with. And when that comes and you ask the question, why are these things happening to me? I'm going to remind you of the answer. It is because of the greatness of your iniquity. Not because of the meanness of your God. Or the unfaithfulness of your Lord. It is because of your iniquity and its extent. And again, in verse 23, we have a very abused passage by some in Christianity. The statement is, Can Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. Many, uh, a Calvinist has taken this passage, said this just proves that man is incapable of Seeking after God. And that is not what is communicated here at all. He does not ask the question, does Ethiopian ever want to change his skin color? (laughs) He's asked the question, can he change his skin color? 
The answer is no, he can't. And we might look at a passage like this and see that there's a determinism here, that there is no hope, there's only despair, and that this is just who we are, and so there's nothing we can do about it until God comes in and he has to do something first in me before I can even respond. And this is the Calvinist position that we are incapable of even desiring after God or wanting after him, uh, and, and therefore... Um, God has to come in by his Holy Spirit and rejuvenate us, bring us back to life, quicken us before we can accept Jesus as our Savior. Which my contention, of course, is if the Holy Spirit can do that without us trusting in Jesus, then why do we need Jesus at all? If we can be made alive by unilateral work of the Holy Spirit without faith in Jesus Christ, then why do we need Jesus at all? But that's their position. And this is one of their favorite passages to keep going to. You can't do it. Well, you're right. We can't change our skin. The leopard can't change its spots. But that is different than... The capacity to do it is different than the desire to do it. And... Again, I want to call you back to the end of chapter 12 where God says, here's what I'm willing to do for you. Even for those who cause sin, I will even bring them forgiveness if they'll just repent. And I'm ready to do all of this. And God is ready to cleanse Judah. They can't cleanse themselves. They cannot make themselves clean. But they can choose to trust in the one who can. And this passage is really a description of where their will has gone, that God has known all along that you are incapable of changing your ways, and thus you must humble yourself and ask him to change you. You must invite him, and this is where humility comes into play, where the choice, where the the the. the image of God in man uh, must act. It must uh, bear fruit there that we make a choice of whether I will persist and say I will do it my way or whether we will surrender and submit and say I will do it God's way. I will surrender. This whole passage is really about pride versus humility. And here the incapacity of man to save himself is true. That is here, that we cannot change us. But to say that this verse is also communing that we cannot want or ask or choose for the one who can change us to change us is error. Because if that is the case, then God has no argument. He cannot hold them accountable if they are incapable of turning to him. If they are incapable, why in the world all this book? Why in the world all these prophets if they are incapable of choosing to come to him? That is not what this is about. This is their incapacity to change themselves to clean themselves. But what God is offering to the prophets is if you will humble yourselves, I'll do that work. I can change your skin. I can change your spots. But you're going to have to come to me. Not arrogantly strut around as though you are someone. And so there's still a call to action. There's a call to choice that you must repent. You, you're, and repentance is a change of mind. It is not a work and, and that we accomplish to somehow save ourselves. It is, a, it is a perspective that we humble ourselves and we dismiss the fact that we can do anything of ourselves uh, in terms of, of being good enough for God. And we recognize that we're desperately wicked and we need God. That isn't a work. That's a choice. But I also want you to notice in the midst of this, of the greatness of your iniquity, that there is a facet of iniquity that destroys the will to seek after God. That persistent great sin 
will diminish the power and the glory of the image of God you bear, the authority to choose. And that also is being described here. And it is demonstrated again in the last question of this chapter, will you still not be made clean? Don't you love that? It is in the passive, which means it has to happen to you, not something you do. Not, not, he doesn't ask, will you still not go and wash yourselves? That's not what he said, did he? He says, you won't let me clean you. Will you still not be made clean? Are you still going to resist my offer? Are you so proud that you're going to persist in being ruined, being soiled? So yes, they still had a choice, even though they could not change their skin or their spots. So it is that we who are so accustomed to evil cannot do good. It's impossible. This passage, I am convinced, had to be somewhere in the back of Paul's mind when he wrote Romans 1. The themes are very strong here, similar to the themes in the latter verses of Romans 1. Let's go there very quickly. Some of you are looking at me with one of those, what's he talking about, looks? In Romans 1, again, I'm going to read a lengthy passage of Scripture. Uh, It's going to say it better than than I can. But you're going to see some of the exact same themes that we see here at the end of Jeremiah 13. Let me pick up verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Remember we talked about earlier on in Jeremiah? What was the problem? The first problem of Israel? They suppressed the truth. They didn't want to hear the truth. They rejected it. And that's going to come forward here in Jeremiah 13, the next few verses as well. Suppress the truth and the righteousness because what may be known of God is, is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were dark, and professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use For what is against nature, likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful. There's that shame that we're talking about. And received themselves the penalty of the error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, notice that's their part, they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to debased mind to do things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Yep, it's in there. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. Chapter 2, verse 1a. Wow, the themes are there. Did you pick up on them? I haven't quite finished chapter 13. Let's press on a little bit in verse 24, 25. Therefore, because of your evil sin, uh, your pride that thinks that you can change yourself instead of recognizing that all you do is, it's impossible for you to do good because you've done evil so long. You have seared your consciences. You have, you, you, your minds have become debased because of your own rejection of my truth and your own iniquity, your own sin that is multiplied. And therefore, I'm going to scatter you like the stubble that passes by the wind. This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me. Why? 
yes, God is going to be doing the punishing, but he did not cause its necessity. Because you have forgotten, forgotten me. You know what forgotten means? It means you once knew it. You knew him, but you've forgotten him. And instead of trusting in him, you've trusted in falsehood. Do you see it? Just like in Romans 1, you didn't like the truth, you wanted to believe the lie. You made that choice. And therefore, there's not because of your sin, because of your evil, because you've forgotten me, here's the portion, here's the measure of judgment that's going to come upon you both now and into your future. And just as we saw that when, when God puts you into that place because of your persistent sin, destroys your will, destroys your conscience. Persistent sin will do that. God comes and says, all that's left for you is shame. I read that lengthy list in Romans 1 so we could read this one and see the association. I'm going to uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries, your lustful names, the lewdness of your harlotry, the abominations on the hills of the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. Your great iniquity, because you have been wise to do evil, and you are somehow become ignorant to do good, you have limited greatly your access to me because of your persistent sin. And there comes a point. And that point is really right on top of these people where judgment is almost completely unavoidable. And I want you to see where that threshold is, where that, where that point is. I want you to notice in the lists, both in Romans and here, what is the evidence that we are at that point where it's almost pretty much too late. That we are on the very, very, very cusp of days of ju- before judgment, weeks before judgment. Maybe in this case, a couple of months, two and a half months before the sacking again of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see the list? He takes glory away and replaces it with shame. And the sad thing is the people aren't ashamed. We do shameful things, but we are unashamed of them. And we are, we are, as a society in that condition, we must recognize, especially a society like our country that claims to, have, to be a Christian nation, to claim to know God, who claims that heritage, who have forgotten him, and have gone after the wickedness, and God sees that, what is left for him to, but to expose the things you should have been ashamed of on your own. But because you persisted in that sin so long, it has seared you. It has, it has destroyed your conscience. And now you are wallowing in that which you should be ashamed of. And you do it openly. And, you're, and you, here we go. We have pride in it. Do you hear the words in our society? Do you not see that? That right now, the ones that we are supposed to be glorying in, the ones we are supposed to be applauding, the ones we are supposed to be supportive of, are the ones that are wallowing the worst of the worst of sin. Paul's willing to list them. Homosexuality. The lewdness. 
all of this disgusting behavior that you should be ashamed of. And God says, because you won't be ashamed of it, I have to shame you by exposing you to punishment. And you have traded glory for shame. And now you stand up proudly And in, because of that heart, because of that destroyed desire to even think of pursuing God or even worrying about what God wants or what is required of a man, you simply chase after more that is shameful. And God says, my punishment, first of all, is to expose your shame. And he uses this imagery. Remember, this, is the ima- this whole chapter is all about your clothing. Intimate apparel, that's how it started. Now we're ending with intimate apparel, the lack of it. That God is going to lift up your skirts and expose the fact that there's no, nothing genuine underneath. Just shame. Do you remember the purpose of the of the sash, the linen sash at the first part last week. Remember its purpose? Its purpose was to be worn up against the very body of the priests in the service of God to, so that in the midst of all their activity of offering sacrifices and, and the blood being spread, which if you've never had to slaughter an animal and take the blood and do things and all that activity, um, those guys were not weenies, okay? Um, they, they did not sit in their office all day and uh, study text. These guys were working sun up to sundown um, in the sacrificial process. Well, in that process of all that physical requirement, God says, you're going to wear these little trousers from here to here so that in case you fall or have necessity of lifting your legs up, you will not be exposed before me lest I have to destroy you. That was the purpose of the sash, was to cover our shame our nakedness before the Lord. And now, God says, I'm going to lift up your skirts and I'm going to do nothing but expose your nakedness because you have no shame. You're doing shameful things, but you have been so persistent in it that you have destroyed your conscience. And so now, my punishment is to be so severe because you have fallen headlong into such actions and such behavior that you are allowing it and you're taking pride in it that that I have to take this measure. This is the measure. And yes, it's severe. And yes, it's impending. Um, You're not going to... Joy of change, you're not going to have long. You've got three months to fix this or be ashamed. They'd rather be drunken and lewd. And give consideration of the God that they as a society once knew and had forgotten. And Romans, remember, said they knew God. They just didn't want to acknowledge him. It's not that he's hiding somewhere. It's not that he's in a distant land. It's not that he's never done anything in order that he ever is doing anything. But rather, we simply want to reject him. I love watching the, the scientific community struggling with, with our fossil things coming out. Um, and I don't know if you're following this very closely, but um, when you hear of fossils with soft tissue that they are bringing out, um, the scientific community is in trouble. Why? It should never be there if those fossils are millions and millions and hundreds of millions of years old. It should never be there. The only way soft tissue should be in the middle of that bone of that fossil is if it's recent. You see, the more we delve into it, the more we discover the truth of God's word, but that's not really the problem. It isn't evidence that's the problem. It's disposition. We are not disposed to wanting to acknowledge God. 
And so we throw out all good science so that we can persist in rejecting that God exists and that I have to submit to him. See, we are no different today. And so here we are in a society that looks almost like what Jeremiah is describing. Not almost like, precisely like what Jeremiah is describing. Can we really wonder that God's judgment isn't soon? Well, how do I personally respond? I can't change a whole nation. Well, remember that in the midst of God's punishment of Israel, individuals were saved. In the midst of the punishment of Judah, individuals were delivered. How do we know? Well, because we have books like Daniel, and we have uh, books like Esther, and we have books like Nehemiah and Ezra, and we know that God delivered and preserves some. Even while he must destroy the nation because the leaders led it into lewdness, into disgustingness without shame. And they, were, they had pride in, in their homosexuality. And we have parades today in our country. And what do they call? Gay pride parades. Can, he, can you be any more directly what this just describes? You have pride in what it, you should be ashamed of. And so I have to come and give a portion of judgment on you. You've forgotten me. You've trusted in lies, the falsehood. Everything here in Romans 1, we see here in, Romans, in Jeremiah 13, uh, we see around us today. And so we must conclude that God is about to judge. And so what does it call for me, the individual? Well, there are too many pulpits today that are going to say, well, you've got to get out the vote. It won't help. There's not a politician on the planet that can change a society like that. None of them have the will to do it. None of them have the righteousness in themselves to do it. We are so far down this list that truly as a society we can say, can we really change our skin anymore? Are we so spotted, and we are, that we can't go back? But individuals are still redeemable. Today is still the day of salvation. And while nations may at this point, and certainly at this point, be destined for punishment, our message is to not change this country, but to change and allow God to clean individuals. So, I'm not going to set a course of action to make our nation great again. I'm going to lay for you a course of action by which you can be made clean again. And that is to humble ourselves. For God, sorry, Jeremiah took what was clean Let nature take its course, and it became ruined, profitable for nothing, soiled. The power and the wonder of God as he takes what is soiled, profitable for nothing and ruined, and makes it clean again. This no man can do, but God can do the impossible. And so we invite you this morning that it is time to humble yourself and say, Lord, I've been involved in shameful things without shame. And that persistent sin has knocked off the edges of my conscience so I don't even feel it anymore. But you're here and you've heard the truth. You have an opportunity to respond. And so, you have a choice. You can either give glory to the Lord your God, which we talked about last week, which is confess your sin. You can humble yourselves and sit down before the Lord. Or, 
you can look up your eyes and see the punishment coming. That's your choice. I can't force you to choose one or the other. Just as Jeremiah could not cause Judah to come to repentance, and God himself does not cause it, but he will convict you to permit you to come to repentance. And this he will always do to all men he has promised. And so today, if you will humble yourself and give glory to the the Lord your God, he can take you out of the darkness into light, from being ruined and worthless to being clean and pure. That is his offer today. Not to a nation. We're too far gone. But to the individual within that nation, there's still deliverance at hand. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word and for its power. And Lord, we recognize that we are not able to redeem ourselves. For even if we strove to do good the rest of our days, it could not balance out the evil we have done. And so we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice to cover our sin, his righteousness to be imputed to us that we might be able to stand before you. Lord, we rejoice that you have made the opportunity for us to be cleaned available to all who would choose. And Lord, my prayer is that you might continue that work in us to convict where that is necessary, to encourage and challenge, to instruct us in righteousness that we might walk in your ways. And so Lord, we thank you for this time we could spend in your word. And we pray that we might choose to go against society. And to walk in your truth, remembering you and acknowledging you, humbling ourselves before you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.